Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. We're back once again to talk about the Macedonians. I left the Macedonians in dire straits when we were last together. Let's refresh our memories and jump back in. The king of Macedonia, Perdiccas, died in battle against the Illyrian tribes in 359 BCE, alongside 4,000 soldiers. This was a catastrophic loss to the Macedonians. Their kings dead, and 4,000 of their best troops lay dead on the field. Not only was this terrible in the moment, but the aftermath of the battle also placed Macedonia in further peril. Perdiccas' son, Aminitus, was only a child, and this brought back the rival claimants to the throne of Macedonia, backed by foreign armies. The Illyrians now could plunder with impunity, and other foreign invasions were imminent. So, now that we're caught up, let's dive in, shall we? In 359 BCE, Philip was 23 years old. His father had died when he was young in 370, and now his two older brothers were dead. Philip's nephew, Amenitus, was a child, so naturally, eyes fell on Philip as the man in charge. Sources are unclear on how it happened, but Philip was declared king instead of his nephew. This makes me wonder if it was due to the situation unfolding. A strong ruler was needed instead of a bureaucratic regency, making decisions difficult to be enacted. We don't know if Philip's rise as king was dependent on making Amenitus his successor instead of any children Philip would have. Naturally, we know that Philip was succeeded by his own son Alexander, but at the time, Philip's many future successes were unknown, and his family's history all pointed to an early death. One of Philip's first acts as king was the execution of one of his three half-brothers. I mentioned this briefly, I believe, last episode, but his, uh, his father had three children with a separate wife. Philip executed the first half-brother, and the other two younger ones escaped. Macedonian monarchs were polygamous and had many wives, and as we'll see in the future, Philip will have seven wives. So, after a little bit of purging, Philip was ready to take on the challenges that awaited him. Here we see Philip begin to flash some charisma and confidence that would be his trademark in diplomacy for the rest of his life. Philip assembled the nobles and convinced them to support him, and that they would and could weather the storm they were facing. Philip also raised troops across the country and consolidated them and spoke with them as well. Many soldiers were part-timers, as this was the norm in this period in history. Typically, many of the Greek palaces did not have a standing army, but the men that lived there, which would be farmers, artisans, the nobles, who were expected to fight and lead on the battlefields as well. This also meant that warfare essentially had its own season, from spring until the harvest and fall, and no activity in the winter as well. Macedonia at this time was well known for its infantry, which was second-rate at best, but they produced some of the best cavalry in all of Greece. When you think of medieval armies, it's the cavalry that are the heroes of the battle, the elite portions of armies. In the ancient world, this wasn't the case. Heavy infantry in the Mediterranean was considered supreme. The Greeks fought in heavy hoplon armor that would cover their torso with braces for their arms and greaves for their legs, carrying a heavy shield called an aspis and typically fought with a spear. The Macedonians had tried to make many reforms to the infantry in the past, even armoring their infantry directly by the state, 
instead of the usual system where individuals would arm themselves. Philip began to make reforms to the army in the brief period of time that he had. He armed them with long spears, known as the sarissa. The standard spear used by the Greeks was around 6 feet in length, while the sarissa was between 13 to 20 feet long. The longer spears meant that they had to be wielded with two hands. So the Macedonians, instead of using the large aspis shields, used bucklers instead. The buckler could be slid through the forearm of the person using it, allowing them to use both hands on their sarissa. The Macedonians also had an elite infantry unit called the Hypaspis, which formed up as a regular Greek infantry. This allowed them to be more flexible and placed on the flanks of the pikemen to allow for adaptability, so the pikemen would not be outflanked. The pikemen would be essentially invincible from the front, but were very vulnerable to the sides as their unit adaptation would not be allowed to move quickly and suddenly. I'll be including pictures on my Instagram to give you a better look. Philip would drill the soldiers relentlessly during this time to achieve unit cohesion so that his army would be able to deploy properly and fight with high morale. So, now let's begin to address the crises that Philip had to address. In the immediate aftermath of the deaths of Perdiccas, the Illyrians, led by the old man Bardilus, were able to raid with impunity and plunder as they wish. Despite their victory, Bardilus was not interested in annexing Macedonia. Bardilus was content with the status quo, which can be seen in terms of the truce between the Illyrians and the Macedonians. These terms include Philip marrying Bardilus's granddaughter, a woman named Audata, tribute payments which meant acknowledging the Illyrians as the big power in the region, and lastly, undisputed control of the territory of Upper Macedonia. At this point in time, Philip had no choice but to accept these terms. Still, it wasn't all bad as it removed the Illyrians as an immediate threat. Then, we had the Paeonians, who saw the elevation of Philip as a chance to also plunder, as the power transfer in a state could be very precarious. Philip strategically paid off certain Paeonian tribal leaders to have a lack of interest developing in invading Macedonia, which ended up working surprisingly well. Next on the docket was the Thracian invasion from the east. This brings us back to our old friend Pausanias. If you recall, he led an invasion into Macedonia back around 369 BCE, just after Philip's eldest brother Alexander became king. Pausanias had threatened the capital of Pella, where a young Philip Imperticus had been living at the time, and it was due to the assistance of the Athenians that Pausanias was pushed out. So, like a shark smelling blood in the water, Pausanias enlisted the help of a Thracian king to help him with the invasion, with the promise of rewards and tribute payments. Philip also used diplomacy to deal with the Thracians. The old Thracian king had died in 359 BCE and his three sons could not agree on who the successor would be, leaving the territory their father had ruled being split into thirds. Now, because the brothers couldn't share very well, this led to the brothers trying to usurp one another and take control of each other's territory. Taking a page out of the Highlander motto, there can only be one. Pausanias had enlisted the assistance of the brother who held control of Western Thrace. Philip offered to pay the Thracian king off, giving him money to fund his efforts against his brothers. Without being able to risk any of his men, the Thracian king accepted the deal and took the money and left Macedonia. And, to cap it all off, 
Philip decided to throw the Una reverse card and offered to pay the Thracians to kill Pausanias, which they did. So, now, two of the biggest problems Macedonia were facing have essentially been paid off, which goes to show money really can solve all your problems. Next, Philip turned to face the other rival to his throne, Argeus. Back in 393 BCE, when Philip's father, Amenitus III, became king, Argeus invaded Macedonia, which prompted Amenitus to escape. Argeus ruled for a year before Amenitus retook his throne with help from the Thessalians. Argeus was now backed by the Athenians, which posed a serious threat to Philip, as they could provide a strong force, and Philip's newly trained army most likely did not stand a chance against the veteran Athenian force. The Athenians landed on the western coast of the Aegean Sea, near the city of Methoni. Argeus brought his own mercenaries and was given 3,000 soldiers by the Athenians. Once again, Philip avoided direct conflict with a shrewd bit of politics. On the eastern border of Macedonia lay a city called Amphipolis. Amphipolis bordered Macedonia and Thrace, and while in the present day it was a free city, it used to be an Athenian colony, strategically placed due to the raw materials in the area, with access to mines and timber that they could use to build their powerful navy. In 424 BCE, Amphipolis declared its independence and threw off the Athenian shackles, and ever since, Athens has desperately attempted to regain the city. Now, during the reign of Philip's brother Perdiccas III, Macedonia had sent a garrison to Amphipolis to help maintain its independence. Now, do you remember earlier in this episode when I said Philip had called for all troops to assemble? This included the garrison at Amphipolis, which the Athenians singled the Macedonians not being interested in the city. Philip, using a bit of galaxy brain thinking, declared the city of Amphipolis as independent. And while it seems obvious that the city was, formally what this meant was that Macedonia also renounced any claim to the city, which meant that even if Argeus was to take control of Macedonia, it would no longer be in his ability to give the Athenians Amphipolis. The united force of Argeus and the Athenians split up, with the Athenians staying in the city of Methoni, while Argeus began moving up the coast to the old capital city, Aigai. Here, Argeus declared himself king at the old capital, but did not encounter support from the local population. The locals probably did not want to get involved in the dispute between Argeus and Philip, and so just minded their own business. Argeus, probably disappointed at the lack of support, began to retreat from the city. But his retreat was not as fast as his march to the city. His soldiers tired, and with morale low, began the trek back. But Philip was aware of Argeus' presence, and moved fast, and caught up to Argeus before he could reunite with his Athenian reinforcements. It was not a large battle, but it was Philip's first victory on the battlefield, which must have been a great relief to the Macedonians and to Philip himself. Once more, Philip played the consummate statesman and was magnanimous to the Athenians who had been part of the fighting. He allowed them to return back to Methoni, but Argeus and his Macedonian supporters had to be handed over to Philip, who most likely then had them executed. The Athenians then proceeded to try and take Amphipolis, but 
like usual, had failed since the city had redeclared its independence. Following his success against Argeus, Philip heard of the news of the death of the Paeonian king and saw his chance to strike like they had done earlier on his ascension. Philip marched into Paeonian territory and defeated their army while the Paeonians had been focused on the succession. Philip's had the leaders of Paeonia swear allegiance to him, and those were the key events of 359 BCE. Then, in 358, Philip decided to roll the dice. Philip would confront Bardillus. Philip was going for broke. While confronting Bardillus and the Illyrians was something that Philip was going to have to do eventually, doing it shortly after these two events seems a little risky to me. He could have allowed himself to have more time to train the army, drill. But this was a decision that had to be made, and eventually would be made, and Philip had decided to make it now. Philip summoned the army to muster, and at an assembly, spoke passionately about the likelihood of a Macedonian victory, raising his army's morale. Philip raised 10,000 infantry and 600 cavalry. Bardidas attempted to negotiate, claiming that each monarch would keep the territory they currently owned. But Philip declined, stating that the Illyrians had to withdraw from Macedonian territory, which included the disputed territory of Upper Macedonia. Philip had come close to securing his borders, and the defeat of Bardilus would be the final nail in the immediate threats to Macedonia, and would, importantly, allow Philip to reclaim the territory of Upper Macedonia. Bardilus could not accept these terms, and so raised his army to meet Philip. Bardilus matched Philip's forces, 10,000 infantry and 500 cavalry. And while the Macedonian cavalry was likely to be of higher quantity, the Illyrians were confident of their success, having defeated the Macedonians only a year prior. The armies met on an open field, with the Macedonians marching to meet the Illyrian forces. Meeting one another, Philip declared his intent by deploying his forces and marching forward. Philip's cavalry was sent ahead to flank the Illyrians, but there's no mention of the Illyrian cavalry. Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Philip and Alexander states that the Illyrian cavalry was either defeated or had dismounted and joined the fight on foot. Philip and his royal bodyguard formed up on the right side of his forces. Bardellus reacted to the Macedonian cavalry attempting to flank him by forming his forces into a hollow square, which meant the cavalry would be unable to flank his forces. Philip and his bodyguard moved faster than the pikemen and struck the corner of the square in front of him. The battle quickly turned fierce and is said to have lasted all day. Fierce fighting like this was exhausting, and it came down to the force more determined to win. Eventually, Philip's cavalry was able to break through into the square, and the Illyrian forces began to break until they fled. One of our ancient sources, Diodorus of Siculus, claims that 7,000 Illyrians were killed in the fighting. And eventually, Philip called off the pursuit of the Illyrians and tended to his own wounded and dead. Philip also sent up a trophy on the field to commemorate his victory. Bardilla sued for peace and asked to be able to take his dead back, which Philip agreed to, but the price for it was Upper Macedonia, to which Bardilla also agreed. This was a massive victory for Philip and the Macedonians, and this cemented Philip's rule as king. And while this gave Philip a kingdom at the height, 
We should remember that this fight was a risk. A calculated risk, no doubt, but still a risk. We don't hear from Bardillus after this battle in the sources, suggesting that he died shortly afterwards. This left Macedonia at peace for the moment, with no immediate threats to deal with. Remarkably, Philip had managed to deal with all the looming crises and showed himself a courageous king, fighting on the front lines, which was very dangerous. Philip also demonstrated another quality that would serve him well, and that was his ability to use diplomacy and political maneuverings to achieve his ends. These abilities made him a more well-rounded king, and it made him unpredictable. He was just as likely to use force if it suited him, or handle things delicately if needed. It just mattered on what kind of outcome Philip wanted. We'll leave it here for today, with the Macedonians basking in their victory and Philip feeling very accomplished. If you like what you heard, please give this episode a 5-star rating wherever you're listening to it. Follow me at pinpoint underscore history on Instagram, and like I said last week, if you have any questions about what you heard, you can now email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com, and I'll include your question in the next episode and answer it. I'll see you all next week, and let's get it.